Uh, hey, happy Easter, all right? Happy Easter to all the campuses. We're very excited about what God has already done this weekend, uh, but want to start off by saying hello uh, to the other campuses, to uh, the Hendersonville campus. Love what God has done there over the last uh, few years, to uh, West Asheville, to uh, the Franklin campus, who's about four months away, four or so months away from uh, moving into a brand new home. They've been meeting in a theater for years, and they're going to be moving into a, a brand new uh, facility to facilitate the mission. And then also to the East Asheville campus, uh, East Asheville. Also, they've been meeting in a school for six or seven years and moved in three weeks ago and are already out of room. So that's a very good, good problem to have. But it's been, again, it's been a great weekend already for our church. We started off uh, actually Friday for the first time this year. We started off with a couple of uh, Good Friday services that were to slingshot us into Easter. And then on Saturday night, we had a couple of services last night. And then here we are on uh, Sunday morning, all right? And uh, glad that you're here. You know, it's kind of interesting when everybody gets to... Uh, Easter, everybody's like, man, preachers, that's like, that's like, the, that's like the Sunday you look forward to. That's a, I was at the gym earlier this week, and some guy looked at me, and he, he's like, hey, uh, big week ahead, isn't it? I was like, yeah, because was, it was like Thursday, and I was kind of frustrated how the message was coming together, and I was over there just trying to work out some frustration. He's like, big week, big weekend, isn't it? I was like, yeah, yeah, it is. He's like, this is kind of like your Super Bowl, isn't it? And I was like, yeah, yeah, I guess, yeah, I guess it kind of is. And uh, you're not helping much, but yeah, I guess it, it kind of is. But uh, seriously, here's the deal. When it comes to Easter, there's, preachers have a mixed, a mixed relationship with things like Christmas and Easter. And let me give, tell you why. First of all, there's a little extra pressure, not just because a few extra services, but you also know kind of what we're going to talk about, all right? You kind of know what we're going to talk about on both Christmas and Easter, right? You're not going to come into Easter, and we're not going to like, okay, open up the Bible to Luke 2, and let's look at the birth of Jesus. You kind of know already ahead of time what we're going to look at. Uh, second little pressure is that, I don't know how to put this gently, but uh, the pressure is there to, because I hadn't seen some of you since... Uh, Christmas, okay? And I hadn't seen some of you since Christmas. I hadn't seen some of you since Easter, all right? So we call you CEO Christians. And so the pressure is, the pressure is, okay, I gotta say something that will maybe, maybe bring you back next week. And so you kind of feel it that way. And uh, my wife is such a great encourager. She's always just, you know, always encouraged me. She kind of knew the frustration and knew the pressure. And she was trying to encourage me. I was like, baby, baby, I'm trying to, I feel like I'm trying to hit a six-run home run. And then she, her first analogy was like, well, baby, just, just hit a bunt and trust God for the rest of it. And that really didn't, that really didn't, that really didn't work, all right? And she kind of sensed that. And so uh, when I expressed some more frustration, she, she tried to encourage me with this. And she said, honey, relax, relax. Don't try to be funny, witty, or intellectual. Just be yourself. And I was like, all right, well, I'm, I'm trying. I kind of thought I maybe was anyway. But hey, this is it, Biltmore Church, all right? This is, this is it, right? This is the resurrection of Jesus Christ, right? The central claim, the central claim of Christianity is the man who had been confirmed dead, got up out of his grave by his own power, appeared to hundreds of people, including friends and enemies, family, strangers for over a month, ascended back into heaven. And then Christianity exploded across first in the Middle East and then all over the world. And even today, 2.4 billion people worship Jesus as king. And there have been more books written about him, more songs uh, sung to him, more paintings painted about him than anybody in the history of the world. 
And so this is it, because if the claim of the resurrection is true, nothing else really matters. And if it's false, then Christianity is basically just like any other religion. Uh, Tim Keller probably put it best when he said, if Christ did not rise from the dead, then why worry about anything that he said? But if Christ did rise from the dead, then you must accept everything that he said. And so here we are today, and I know we've got a wide variety of kind of spiritual pilgrimages. Some of you are uh, just so fired up, and you were like the first drumbeat, ain't no grave. You're like, yes! I mean, you are there, and some of you are like the opposite of the spectrum. Your mom drugged you here because you're like, listen, you gotta go with the family. You gotta go to church on Easter, all right? It's what we do each year, and you kind of came reluctantly here, and maybe you've even got some significant doubts. I'm glad you're here, and we wanna be a place that is open to uh, respectfully answering those questions. I'm not sure what God is up to, but the last three or four years, there have been hundreds and hundreds of people God has sent our way that just honestly, it's like, I've got some questions, and you're welcome to ask those. So I'm going to jump right into the text today, and really what we're going to look at are two reactions. That's really all we're going to have time for. We're going to look at a pretty simple Easter text, but what I want to draw out from there are two reactions. Those two reactions should, could, and very well will be the reactions of people uh, today. All right, so the first 10 verses talk about, we're just going to talk about one, unpack it a little bit, and then the about four or five more verses, that will be one more reaction. So Matthew 28 is where we're going to be. And uh, I've highlighted a couple of verses, a couple of parts of the verses. If you're new here, here's kind of what that means. That doesn't mean those words are more important than the other words. All right, every word, every syllable is important, but I've highlighted them to say, all right, take a mental note of this because we're going to walk through the text. We're going to come back to those. So sort of put that in the back of your mind about uh, what we're going back to. It says, now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week. Now, we think of the first day of the week as as Monday, but in a Jewish mind, the first day of the week was Sunday. And so the first day of the week, Sunday morning, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. Put that in your mind. We're going to come back to that. They didn't go there expecting an empty tomb. They didn't go back there expecting a resurrection. And we'll see that really nobody did. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven, came and rolled back the stone, and sat on it. Verse 3, his appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow. For fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. They didn't die. You're going to see that they actually went back to who had hired them. They didn't die, but they just were paralyzed with fear for a while. Verse 5, the angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen, as he said. Come see the place where he lay. And apparently, if you look at all the gospel accounts, that's where the women went in there and saw the place where he was laying and all the wrapping neatly folded in place. It says, then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. We'll come back to that in a second. He's going there to Galilee. There you will see him See, I have told you. Now, a couple more verses. So they departed quickly from the tomb, and here's the first reaction we're going to come back to. They left, and they went with the combination you see throughout the New Testament and throughout the early church. In spite of persecution, in spite of pressure, in spite of poverty, what you saw is an incredible, uncommon joy. More joy than you see in the average teenager walking in the mall. You see people back then had phenomenal joy in spite of all of this. Why is that? How can I have some of that? And they ran to tell his disciples. 
And behold, Jesus met them and said, greetings. Now, real quick about that one. Uh, Oftentimes in church, uh, we think of the resurrected Christ very, very formally. It's like when you think about the resurrected Christ and some of his appearances, we tend to think it's like, behold, behold. You know, it's like, I am here. That's not actually the scholars say that that word greetings right there is intentionally casual. It's almost a slang term. It's a very relational word. It's like, what's up or how are you doing? It's very relational, just like Jesus was when he walked before he was resurrected, all right, which is a great principle for us that you can talk to him, you can commune with him, you can visit with him, you can actually rely on him and talk to him, and it's here even in his resurrection. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshiped him, and then verse 10, then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid, and here's the phrase we're also going to come back to, go Go and tell his brothers. Go and tell the brothers. You're like, who is that? Those are the guys that had blown it big time. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there, there they will see me. All right, let's kind of do a little background before we do the last few verses and and then jump in. Uh, We don't know exactly all that the women were thinking when they went to the tomb that morning. We don't know all that they were thinking. We don't know all that was on their mind. We've got some glimpses of that, but we don't know exactly what they were thinking, we don't know what they expected. The text just says they went to see the tomb. When you kind of look at some parallel texts, Mark's gospel says they went to anoint him with perfume. That is the kind of the parallel of us going and laying flowers on a grave, okay? Uh, Mark's gospel also says that they were worried about who would, who'd roll away the stone. You got a two-ton stone in there that had been sealed. How are we going to get in to begin with? And what is certain is they absolutely did not expect an empty tomb with a stone rolled away and an angel chilling on top of the rock. They absolutely did not think that was going to be there. As a matter of fact, after the crucifixion, nobody, nobody expected that. There's nobody outside the tomb with a countdown toward the resurrection, all right? There's no account of anybody outside the tomb that Easter morning going, 10, 9, 8, Seven, cue the sun, six, five, four, drum roll, three. You see none of that at all. Nobody expected nobody, okay? Nobody expected there to be nobody right there. They expected Jesus to be deceased and stay deceased like everybody else had been. And so when we look at this, it happened so fast. Give you a little context. Think about how fast stuff had happened. Think about their grief. Think about their head spinning. I mean, Jesus was arrested on Thursday night. Uh, Most of the disciples didn't even find out about it till Friday morning. By Friday afternoon, Jesus is dead, okay? And so all this stuff is happening in a fast-forward type of deal. And so they're grieving. Their head is spinning. Just a week earlier with this Palm Sunday They thought this is the day Jesus is going to declare that he is king, he is Messiah, he will put the Romans under his thumb like we've been under their thumb. But then when he dies like a criminal, like when he's mutilated, like when he's crucified, they're like, that can't be the Messiah. It must be wrong because God wouldn't allow the Messiah to be killed. A little context is the fact that most Jews expected the Messiah to come and crush the oppressive Romans. So throughout their theology, they would read Old Testament text about him coming and the idea of crushing the Messiah, he would be the new king. Haven't you ever wondered about, like, how did the disciples miss so many times when Jesus said, listen, there's gonna be, there's gonna be a day coming and the Son of Man will be crucified and then he will rise again after three days and you're like, how did they miss that? How did they miss that? It's the same way we miss it when somebody tells us news we do not wanna hear. 
When somebody wants to tell us news, I don't want to hear that. I don't want to hear about the bad report. I don't want to hear about how our marriage is going. Don't give, I don't want to hear about that at all. And so when Jesus would bring up the fact that the Son of Man would be crucified, they're like, don't talk about that. Let's move on to the good news. But then he shows himself to over 500 people over 40 days, and the Christian movement spreads through the world faster than anybody would have expected. People had no resources. They had no public stature. They had no political attachments. They only had a conviction that Jesus Christ really had physically risen from the dead. That is what their conviction was, and that's what changed everything. And so you look here in the story, and and by the way, when we say he's risen, let me be clear because I understand the culture in which we live in, but just to be clear, when we say he is risen, we do not mean he is risen in some poetic, metaphorical kind of spiritualized, the gopher is my brother kind of way. That's not the way we believe he is risen. When we say he is risen, what we believe is that an actual person named Jesus with an actual body actually died, actually got put in the tomb, the tomb was actually sealed, and he actually physically rose from the grave after three days. That's what we believe, and that's what Orthodox Christianity has believed for 2,000 years. All right. It's only in the last little bit of time where people are trying to, you know, just, oh, well, he's raised in our teachings and he's raised. No, no, he's raised physically. That's what the text clearly, clearly says. All right, last few verses and then we're going to uh, bring it down to application. Here it is, Matthew 28, 11. This is the second reaction you could have. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priest all that had taken place. So understand that the Roman guard was sort of on loan to the Jewish people, all right? So Roman guard, in this case, you probably had 16. They were four at a time. They would take shifts. This would be like our Navy SEALs. These were very trained, very hardened, very capable people. Uh, And the penalty, by the way, uh, if Pilate had heard of the fact that They would kill somebody if a prisoner escaped, much less if somebody who was dead somehow got out of the tomb, okay? And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they talked about it. What are we gonna do? What are we gonna do? What are we gonna do? They gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, tell people, quote, his disciples came by night and stole him away. We're gonna deal with that toward the end of the message about why that's kind of a ludicrous uh, lie. But it stole him away and keep you out of trouble. Trouble with who? What are you gonna see? And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble in this way. It's like, all right, you're gonna get in trouble, but I tell you what, here's some money, go away, tell this story, and then if it gets to the, if it gets to the governor's ears, what'll happen is we will cover for you. And so they took the money, did as they were directed, and this is the story that has been spread among the Jews to this day. Now this day was obviously the time when Matthew's gospel was originally written. But the question really asked is what do you do with the resurrection? In, when you see a narrative in the Bible, one of the good Bible studies that you ought to do is lean into the fact of who do I most resemble in the story? Who do I most look like in the story? Whose reaction is it that would most parallel mine in my life? And so let me give you two of them today. Okay, the first one is about the women that you see at the tomb, and the word that I always use is the word delight. It's the word delight. Now, that's what that is. It's trying to take what he says. It says they left with fear and joy. Fear and joy. Fear, why? Because if the tomb is empty, he was who he says he was. But joy, because it showed Jesus had come to rescue us. 
that he really was the Messiah. God didn't make a mistake when he died on the cross on Friday, and he didn't come to bring judgment, but he came to bear judgment for us. And so what that led to is an amazing amount of joy throughout the early church. I mean, they had joy, again, they had joy when they were, there are extra biblical accounts of like women and children going to the lion's den to be martyred, and they went there with joy. Not some kind of fake, cheesy kind of joy, but a deep understanding and peace that, you know what, if Jesus is raised from the dead, then you know what, I can go through this with joy, and that's all that matters. And so let me give you two things that would be uh, probably in this room and at our church today, all right? Here's one of the, here are two things that the joy sprung from that you see throughout the early church. The first one is this, they're understanding that, they're understanding this, they're understanding that my past is paid for. My past, now your past could be last night or your past could be last year, but my past is paid for. Did you notice in the text where it says, I want you to go and tell my brothers that I want to see them. Now that might not mean a lot to you, but I promise you it meant a lot to the brothers where Jesus still wanted to see them, still believed in them, still was gonna use them, still was gonna commission them. That meant a lot, because who were the brothers? The brothers are the guys that Jesus had poured into for three and a half years, but at the clutch time, at the clutch time when the game was on the line, when Jesus was getting tried, when there was a kangaroo court, when Jesus was on the cross, they all vanish. We're gone. Probably the biggest implosion was a guy named Peter. Peter, in the first part of the book of Acts, he's like the leader, okay? But he's the one that blew it. Now, Peter's the guy that probably, he went up like a rocket, down like a rock. Actually, if you see his biography, he, he doesn't believe, then he believes, and then he denies he ever believes, and then he re-believes after that. Here's the way it basically happened. Peter was like one of the first ones to follow Jesus. He helped other people come to follow Jesus as well. He believed that Jesus was gonna come and be that Messiah, that king, rule and reign right then, take care of all of Israel's enemies. And when that didn't happen, when he saw Jesus hanging on a cross, when he saw what happened, his whole world got shattered. And so he denies Jesus three times. You know the whole story, the whole story where Jesus says, you're gonna deny me three times. Like, I will not. All these other guys might be lame, but I'm not lame. I'm like that guy you can count on. I drive that Ford F-150. I'm the man's man. You can count on me. But when push came to shove, what happened is he's like, I don't know the man. I don't know the man. I don't know the blankety, blankety. I don't know the man at all. And then when the rooster crowed, it just says he went out and he wept bitterly. And what happened is his guilt turned into shame. You know, there's a difference between that, right? You know, guilt is really kind of temporary. Guilt is what you feel about an act that you did. You feel bad about something you did. If you don't know how to handle guilt, if you don't know how to deal with guilt in a gospel fashion, guilt will turn into shame. Shame is much deeper than guilt. Guilt is I feel bad about what I've done. Shame is because that is festered. I don't just feel bad about what I've done. It has overcome my identity. I feel bad about who I am. That my past is my identity. You could actually hear it a little bit. You could hear it in Nicole's testimony. And so uh, here's Peter, and when Sunday morning happened, everything changed for him. And so years later, he'd write a book called First Peter, another one called Second Peter. And in the very first few verses, he says, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. I love that, a living hope. It's not a verb like I hope so, it's a noun. And what Peter's saying is, the resurrected Lord resurrected my faith 
I had lost my faith, and then when I saw a resurrected Christ, that resurrected my faith. And then God used him greatly. God used him in a phenomenal way in the early church out of his shame. And the reason I say that is most people, I'd say most people at church today, again, I've been here a while, and I know the Southeast, and I know the religiosity that permeates the Southeast. Most people, most people believe that God's acceptance of them is based on either how good you are or how well you keep the tenets of your religion. How well I do, how well I do, how well I do. And that may work fine for you until you fail, until you fail big time like, like, like Peter. And when you fail big time like Peter, what you and I tend to do if we're just religious is we run from God in our shame. I don't know how to handle it. I thought I was better than that next guy. I thought I was better than that. And I've disappointed myself, so I'm gonna run from God in shame because we don't understand the gospel. That's why. A lot of preachers don't understand the gospel either. To be blunt, there's a, about 10, probably 15 years ago, there's a, a, again, I'm not gonna slam any preacher specifically, but this particular preacher was a preaching and he had a good end in mind. Just to know you, I'm not, he's preaching during like a true love weights rally and all, all that can be very, very good. Again, it talks about, you know, sexuality and waiting till marriage and that's the best way for human flourishing. All that's good, but understand he wasn't preaching the gospel when he put it this way because what he's doing is he's, he was talking to about a thousand teenagers and he was talking about, you know, wait, wait, wait. And again, all that's good, but he, his crescendo was he brought up this red rose and this red rose, he's like, this red rose is beautiful. And he smelled this rose. Oh, this red rose smells so good. I don't want to keep it to myself. And then he put the red rose into the audience and passed this around. Everybody, everybody kind of touched this red rose and see how this red rose smells and how it's so awesome. And it started to be passed around on the whole audience and started to get handled and touched and kind of manhandled a little bit. And as it passed around, he started going over all this very graphic stuff about STDs and venereal diseases and all this kind of stuff. He's going, all that stuff. And then he's like, hey, where's my rose? Where's my rose? Where's my rose? And somebody hands him the rose back. And, you know, the rose is just beat up, okay? I mean, the rose has been passed around. They passed around for like, you know, thousand teenagers handling the rose. And he's like, look at this rose. Look at how beat up it is. Look at how manhandled it is. And then here's the, here's the deal. You're like, don't say that. Because he goes, girls, ladies, who would, and this is like his big deal, who would, who would want this rose? It's like, are you kidding me? Jesus wants the rose. That's who wants the rose, okay? Jesus wants the rose. And if all you are is religious, you think, you know what? Who wants that rose? But if you understand the gospel, you say, I was that rose. I was that rose. Now, I might have been a cleaned up banker. I might have been an awesome accountant, but I was that rose. I was sinful. I was rebellious. I needed the gospel. Some of you came in here. You came in here. You came in here strutting. I don't know how to put it. You came in here strutting. You came in here strutting like, man, we're going to hear this message. We're going to sing a few songs. We're going to go to Bojangles and it's going to be an awesome Easter. You know what? No understanding of grace. No understanding of the gospel. Going to church. Why? Because grandma told us to go. And what that is, is that's dead religion is what that is. Church is a terrible hobby. Understand that? Church is a terrible hobby. If all this is a hobby, get something else. It's a lot more fun. It's a, it's a lot less expensive. It's a terrible hobby. Religion is a terrible hobby. Because what religion does is if you are just religious, you will either walk around strutting or you will run from God sniveling in shame, depending on how you're doing. 
That's why some of the most self-righteous people, some of the most damning people that look so down on people are quote-unquote religious people because religious says, I am more moral than you. And because I'm more moral, I'm looking down on you because you look wrong, you act wrong, you vote wrong, you do whatever, and so I'm looking down on you. But then what happens is if all you are is religious, when you fail, when you blow it, when you implode, then you have shame and you're like, I've let myself down. But that's not true with the gospel. With the gospel, you understand all that I have is from God anyway. But for the grace of God, there go I anyway. And when we look out there, it's like, uh, I think about the people in our church. I mean, I thank God for what God's doing, particularly the last few years. We have people in this church that have some of the most messed up mistakes. And what's been awesome to watch is, it's God taking a bunch of messes and then making them into messages, all right? He takes a bunch of messes. And it's not like we're, everybody, everybody looks great Easter, man. Everybody's like, yeah, I'm looking, I got, looking great on Easter. I got my green or I got my blue or I got my flowers. I got my dress and that's awesome. But if we were able to kind of pull back all of that and see that at church today, you got people who've been in jail. You got people who've been addicted. You got people who have been unfaithful to their spouses. You got people who've done all that stuff. And then for the most part, many of us, what we found is, you know what? The grace of God, it wasn't you pulling yourself up by your bootstraps. It was the hands of God and the hands of Jesus reaching down and pulling you up by his hands of grace. That's what Easter's about. That's what Easter's about. All right, so, all right, so we'll, we'll go for our clapping. We'll, go to, we'll do our clapping rule uh, at a different time. So we don't have time for that. So here's, here's the second one. Second one is uh, my present is transformed. Okay, is your past taken care of? Yes, it is. My present is changed. My present is changed. My present is changed. I love this. He said, hey, not just, not just, hey, go tell my brothers, but go to Galilee. What's in Galilee? Galilee is where he gives them what's called the Great Commission. He basically tells these ragtag group of disciples that had, again, they had virtually no money. They had no influence. They had no army. They had no nothing. And he says, I want you to basically go and take the message that Jesus lives and Jesus loves, and I want you to take it to the entire world, all right? The entire world. That's all you want? Yeah, that's, that's what I want you to do. And so what you see is uh, that's what they do. They spend, their, they spend their lives, their wealth, their resources, living, loving, caring for strangers, telling people the good news, all of that. And, um, you know, a lot of times we struggle with that. And I'm not talking just to the person that doesn't know Jesus. I'm talking about to the Christian, the Christian as well. It's about chasing the, for them, it wasn't about chasing the next bucket list. All right. For the Christian, you know, bucket lists are kind of a weird deal. Because if you know heaven is real and heaven is as awesome as it says, heaven is not about up there playing some stinking harp. That's not what heaven is like at all. Everything that's good here is like phenomenal up in heaven, all right? And so a bucket list, oh, I want to go see the Alps. Nothing wrong with the Alps, but the Alps are like a dump compared to what you're going to see in heaven, okay? So bucket lists and using your whole life to go to a bucket list, that's not, the early Christians are like, man, we're living for a different kingdom, all right? I've got 70 years to spend my life for the for the expansion of the kingdom, and that's what they did. But what do we tend to fall into? We tend to be like little T-Rexes, all right? We tend to like a little T-Rex, little alligator arms, like if I can just get this promotion, okay? If I can just get this relationship or this house or this car, then I'll be satisfied, and we know all we're doing is drinking sand. We know that's what we're doing, because every once in a while when we grab it, it gets old in like a month. And we're like, well, I gotta get something else. Why? Because Ecclesiastes says, God has put eternity into our hearts. God has put eternity into our hearts. And until Jesus is enough for you, no person, no thing will ever be enough for you. 
Let me say it again. Until Jesus is enough for you, until Jesus is Christian, until Jesus is enough for you, no person, no thing, no accomplishment will ever be enough for you. Okay? You got the right diagnosis, you're just not having the right solution. And I thought about this that uh, some of you are like me. TED Talks are, are sometimes pretty cool, all right? TED Talks, somebody asked me last night, they're like, hey, what's, what's a TED Talk? And so I was, I was saying, well, a TED Talk's like a 15 to 20-minute talk by different professionals about a certain topic. They're typically very, very, very uh, well-schooled in. where versed in. They can be very helpful at times. Well, there was a particular TED Talk by a very impressive uh, Christian businesswoman. And what I, what I enjoy is when a non-Christian kind of stumbles on to a biblical principle and they don't know what to do with it once they get there. And that's kind of what this lady was doing. This lady was doing this great talk about how do you be successful, and it talked about all these key words. Her main talk was about vulnerability. It's one of the more watched TED Talks that there is, about vulnerability and how vulnerability and how you got to learn to trust. And then, but she also hit on these epic, epic topics, all right, epic topics like guilt and shame and purpose and addiction and identity. And for, her talk is 20 minutes long, and for 18 minutes, she just kills it, man, she does a phenomenal job diagnosing the issues and the problems, but then the last two minutes she tries to go into the solution and you're like, ah, oh, ah, oh, 18 minutes, beautiful. And her last two minutes is basically this. When nobody else believes in you, when you got all that guilt and you got all that shame, you gotta look in the mirror and tell yourself, you are enough. You believe in you. I love, listen, that works until you look in the mirror and go, that guy really messed up. Until you look in the mirror and go, I don't believe in that guy. Until you look in the mirror and go, that girl, she is, she's definitely, she is addicted. When you look at that person, it's like, I really do look at that and I see shame. I see, I don't see somebody with confidence. I don't see somebody with purpose. And here's what I just jotted down, that in Christ, the fact is that at the cross, at the cross, he was raised with power from the grave and he makes all things new in my life. That in Christ, I've been reconciled. So you, know, so you know what? I got no shame. My shame has been taken away. In Christ, I'm loved so I can love others. In Christ, he has been generous with me so I can be generous with others. In Christ, I've been adopted so I can be secure. In Christ, I've been shown grace so I can be vulnerable and don't have to put this mask on. In Christ, I've been approved so I can actually be authentic. And let me say it again. Until Jesus is enough for you, no person, no thing, no accomplishment, no accolade will ever be enough for you. It won't. A couple of different quotes that have always jumped up for me. One of them is by a guy named Pascal. He said, there's a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of each man which cannot be satisfied by any created thing but only by God the creator made known through Jesus Christ. And that guy, by the way, was a brilliant guy, invented a bunch of stuff we use today. Another one by a guy named Augustine says, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until it rests in you. Let me say it again. If you understand the gospel, when you find, like, you know what, that's where my life is. Maybe this Easter, you're a Christian and you're like, man, I gotta have my faith resurrected, man. I've blown it and I'm away from God. I wanna come back. Don't run from him, run to him. But some of you are like, I don't even believe that stuff. I'm not even sure the tomb was empty. Well, let me spend the last couple of minutes on the second reaction. Second reaction would be this one. Is you see doubt in this story. I don't know if you caught it. You see doubt. You mainly see it in the chief priest here. Now there's a difference between honest doubt and dishonest doubt. Look at me for a second. 
there's a difference between honest doubt and dishonest doubt. God will go to great lengths to show grace and mercy to the honest doubter because you see it in the Bible. People doubted throughout the Bible. I mean, Moses doubted after God spoke to him through a burning bush. Can you imagine? God speaks to you through a bush. You're like, oh, I'm not sure he's real. I mean, really? Really? Okay. David, the guy that wrote a lot of worship songs, look at about 50 of those psalms are doing with frustration and anxiety and even anger about, God, why don't you show yourself? Why don't you do something? They're all about, about doubt. You see Job, he doubted. You see doubting Thomas. Probably the best one is actually at the end of this chapter. It says that when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. And they, Jesus is ascending up into heaven. He's ascending up into heaven. And his disciples watching the resurrected Christ ascend into heaven, some of them are like, ah, I'm not sure yet. I'm like, what is it gonna take? And what are they doubting if they see that? Well, maybe here's some of the things they're doubting. Maybe they're still doubting about, hey, Jesus, you're ascending up into heaven, but man, the Romans are still in charge. You're ascending up into heaven, but my mom is still dying, and you didn't heal her. You healed all these other people. You didn't heal her. You didn't do some things I thought you would do, so I'm kind of doubting what's going on here, and maybe that's where you are. So here's what dishonest doubt is. Dishonest doubt are like the chief priests. They pay the guards to lie because they don't want the resurrection to be true, but what they really don't is they don't want the implications of it being true because if Jesus rose from the dead, he is who he says he is. He is Lord, God, King, and Master and has rule, absolute say over our lives. That means his agenda matters. And what he says about money or sex or anything else, that is always going to be best for human flourishing. So you're like, well, I'm not sure I believe even the tomb is empty. Well, we don't have time to unpack it completely, but I do want to do a drive-by on it. There's a bunch of more detailed resources. We've taught on this before. Guys like Lee Strobel have written extensively on this, and you can ask questions. But let me just do a flyby in a couple of minutes here about this. Because really the fact that the tomb was empty that morning is fairly agreed upon by virtually every scholar. Now, not obviously, obviously, not everybody believes that Jesus rose from the dead. All you gotta do is turn on like a news program during the Easter time and you'll see about 50 different theories about why the tomb was empty. But the fact that the tomb was empty is not really even argued anymore by scholars. There was one group that did it a while and they've kind of gone away and they're like, well, that evidence is just not even gonna hold up to even the biggest skeptic. So the fact that almost everyone believes Everyone believes that there was a man named Jesus. He really lived, that he was executed by the Romans. He was buried. And on the third day, the tomb where he had been laid was found empty. And so you've got a couple of different theories. Let me give you two. Theory number one by some people is that the body was stolen. The body was stolen. Well, if the body was stolen, who would be the main possibilities? Who would be the main suspects? Who would be the persons of interest? Some people say, well, the enemies of Jesus stole the body. That doesn't really hold water because if the enemies who controlled the media, who controlled the power, who controlled all of that, all they would have had to do if they had have actually stolen the body, when all the disciples are going, he's risen, he's risen, they would have just had to say, he's not risen. We stole him, you fools. We stole him. Here is his body right here. Christianity would have been stopped in its tracks immediately. Well, other people, what it's like, what, it's what they were saying here, it's the, it's the friends. It's the friends. Now, again, let's just think logically about this. This is not a mocking thing at all. Let's just think logically about this. That the friends, that all the disciples who ran away when things got tough, 
that even in the trial, they scattered. At the cross, you could find a handful of them, just a couple of men and some more ladies were at the cross. What you're having to tell yourself is this. You're having to say that that group who ran scared all of a sudden got enough gumption to go back to the tomb. They did like some Jack Bauer moves and took out Roman guards, moved away a two-ton two-ton stone that had been sealed, which is kind of the idea of super glue, super glued up there, and then, and then took the body away. And even after that, the fact that almost all of them died a martyr's death, you have to convince yourself that, all right, they were willing to go to the grave with that lie. You're like, well, a lot of people go to the grave with a lie. They do, but they don't go to the grave with a known lie, something they know is a lie. You've got to convince yourself that some scenario like they're out in a boat and Peter's like, hey, He's dead, he's dead, he's dead. But hey, listen, hey, I got a story, I got a story. Here's the story. Story is, let's just say this. Let's say Jesus rose from the dead. And when we say that, when they start beating us, then we won't even fight back. We'll give away all our money, we'll take care of the orphans, we'll do all that stuff. And then when they're about to kill us and kill our families, we still won't recant. You know, there's not one, there's not one recant that is recorded, even in the extra biblical materials that we can be fine. Nobody said, hey, we were just kidding. He really is alive. We got him buried over there on 34th Street. No, nobody said that. Nobody said that. So there's one more theory that said Jesus actually didn't die. Jesus didn't die. That's called the swoon theory. The swoon theory. This is, this is the, honestly, this is kind of, most people don't hold to this, but it was a big one like in, the, like in the, like the 50s and the 60s when kind of that higher criticism was starting to take root. And he said, uh, the swoon theory is basically this. Jesus really didn't die. They beat him and they flogged him. They did all that stuff. They tortured him. They put him on a cross. They put a spear in his side. Uh, they put him in a tomb. But the swoon theory says that when they put him in the tomb, the dampness of the tomb, the coolness of the tomb resuscitated Jesus. So Jesus got up. He never really died. He got up, somehow pushed away the stone. He then went like Navy SEAL and beat up all these four, these four Roman guards and then somehow made his way back to the disciples and presented himself and convinced them, even among his wounds, that, you know what? I didn't, <laughs> I've resurrected. It's like, man, that is a hard, that's a hard pill to swallow. And you got to go back to all the eyewitness accounts, some of which were told actually while the people were still alive. First Corinthians 15, six says, you know what? If you don't believe me, you go and ask them. And he did it while people were still alive. It's like, you know what? This is, this happened. You can go ask him if you don't believe that. Add on to that things like change lives of enemies, change lives, even of family. That's one that kind of always has stuck out to me. Change lives of family. Did you know that most of Jesus' family didn't even believe in him during his ministry? They didn't. They didn't, believe, they didn't believe in him as the Messiah. You got half-brothers like James and Jude, for example. They think, they think Jesus is a lunatic. They do. They're like, brother's gone cray-cray. We gotta go save him from himself. You see that. Even at, the, even, at the, even at the crucifixion, they're thinking the same thing. But amazingly, amazingly, what happens is after the resurrection, the family comes there. James and Jude end up being pastors. They end up writing books in the New Testament. They end up saying he is Lord God and King. And so one of the things we asked our church a couple of months ago is what would it take to convince you that your brother is Lord God and King of the universe, all right? Is there anything they could do? I promise you it's gonna have to be more than a couple of magic tricks on the side here, all right? It's like, that. my brother is God. So here's a... One scholar put it this way, he said, the evidence of Jesus' resurrection is so strong that nobody would question it except for two things. One, it is a very unusual event. 
And second, if you believe it happened, you have to change the way that you live. There's what I wanna say to our doubters, a couple things. Are you an honest doubter? An honest doubter says, I don't believe, what I, but I wanna know and I'm gonna check it out. An honest doubter says, you know what, I got, I got drug here by grandmom. I didn't really wanna come. I think it's a fairy tale, I think it's a myth, I think it's a legend, but I'm willing to lean in and actually examine the evidence and what you're saying is, I'm honestly gonna let the evidence, because uh, you can't put it in a test tube, you can't do that with any person of history, I'm gonna let the evidence of the resurrection, I'm gonna lean into it, and I'm gonna let the evidence of the resurrection help me to doubt my doubts. Because bottom line is all the questions we have, whether it be about morality or about pain or whatever, those questions, if you can actually answer the question, did Jesus, did he rise from the dead? Then all the other questions to some degree can come underneath that. Because you're like, if he can raise from the dead, then maybe he understands some stuff that I don't understand. Even in my pain. If he rose from the dead, he's like the guy, he's like the helicopter looking at the parade and you're on the street corner, you see one aspect of the parade. I see one section, one section, one section. He sees the whole thing. I don't understand it, but he understands the whole thing and he will walk through you with that, in that pain, but doesn't necessarily say I'm gonna explain it. So here's kind of where we are. Some of you have stopped believing. Some of you have stopped going to church because you have doubts. And let me say again, there's nothing, there's not wrong to doubt. There's not, there's not wrong to doubt. But I would say the honest doubter, we wanna just invite you to seek some answers. Seek the answers, there's tons of answers out there. Secondly, I would say if you're already a Christ follower, the whole chapter of the whole gospel of Matthew ends by saying, you know what, our lives, our church, our reputation, our resources are to be about getting the message of Jesus out, that he loves people and that he's alive. That's what we're supposed to do. That's what we're supposed to do. Build his kingdom, not our kingdom. Now. I, I need to say that because even this week I was, somebody tagged me and it was a Facebook post, but I think it was a Facebook post that attached to a uh, Asheville Citizen Times article. And it was basically about Christians being terrible tippers at restaurants, okay? That's what it was about. That's the way it started. It started by saying that the servers were talking about how the church crowd is so, you know, that we'll do stupid stuff like, uh, leave one of those million dollar bills that says, this is your tip, Jesus loves you, okay? So don't email me about that, because it's okay to leave the million dollar bill if you also leave some real bills saying that I'm demonstrating the gospel, that God was generous with me, and I wanna be generous with you, okay? Uh, the gospel is not a cliche or some little trick that you leave to the single mom trying to support her family, okay? So you can leave the gospel track, but also leave something to put food on her table as well that week. Sorry, um, so that, that's part of it. But what, what the comments kind of matriculated into was comments about like, well, they shouldn't even push their faith on us. They shouldn't push their faith on us. Nobody needs to push their faith on us. Keep it to yourself. Don't tell me what to believe. And you know, um, I guess what I can just say is, because some of you are like, this is what I hate about you Christians. This is what I hate. This is why I stopped going to church because you're always trying to convert. You're trying to convert us. And, and I, um, I don't know what to say besides you are right. <laughs> I mean, you, you are right. You, you are right. But do you understand at least, you understand at least why we're trying to do it? I'm gonna be honest about it. There's one, there was an atheist comedian 
He said, a lot of my atheist friend get mad when Christians come and try to tell them about the gospel. He said, I can respect that. He said, what I don't understand is people who believe this and don't try to persuade me. And he said, how much do you have to hate somebody to never share the truth that you feel like is integral for their eternal salvation? Now listen, I'm not gonna force anything on you or pressure you, but you deserve to know the truth so that you can decide for yourself. And I'd love for you to believe. I'd love for you to be at church today and say, you know what, I believe. And I'll give you a chance here in a second. But I would say not only, did, not only do I want you to believe, the person who invited you, they really want you to believe, which is, here's a clue, that's the reason they invited you, okay? I know it just got awkward when I said that, but that's really, that's really, because they love you. They want you to make that decision for yourself. So, you know, I understand, uh, you know, the tension there, but again, uh, Maybe you're ready to just ask some questions. And again, you are welcome. We'd love for you to come back and investigate these things with us. We'd love that. Maybe you're ready to believe today. And uh, we'd love to lead you in that as well. So here's what I want to do at all the campuses. If you would, bow your heads and close your eyes for a second. Your head's bowed and your eyes closed. Um, please don't get up and leave uh, and disrupt. Some, this is a very important time for some people. And so I'd say kind of threefold. First of all, if you're already a Christ follower and yet... Uh, the resurrection has not had the implications on your life that it should have. Uh, your life is not about God's kingdom, to be honest. You know it. God knows it. And he's just saying, be honest, run to me. You've lost a lot of the joy, a lot of the fervency, a lot of the peace. All that stuff that you used to have is now the dustiness and the dryness of your spiritual life is an indictment that you have walked away from the Lord. But he loves you. He invites you back. He wants to resurrect your faith because he's a resurrected Lord. And so right now, uh, your path is just repentance. I'm turning away from my own agenda, my own kingdom, my own stuff, and I'm turning back to you, Jesus. Just tell him that. You're a Christ follower. Talk to him like you would somebody who loves you. Some of you are honest doubters, and I would say your prayer might be something. Like, I don't even know if anybody's listening. Well, just in case somebody's listening, I would encourage you as an honest doubter, say, God, if you're really real, if you really did come out of that grave, if you really did conquer death, and that does mean, it does mean you're Lord of all, and just tell him. It's like, I do want to know, would you over the next few days give me the, the, the guts to look at the evidence and show me that you're real? But if you hear this morning and you're like, you know what? I know I've never heard about a God who loves me in spite of knowing my past, in spite of knowing who I am, he still loves me and I want to know him. And so if that's you, then with your heads bowed and your eyes closed, just in your heart of hearts, back to God, just something like, dear God, thank you for loving me. Thank you for paying for my sin on the cross Thank you for validating that you accept that payment by the empty tomb. As best I know how, I want to turn from my way of trying to make life work and embrace Jesus by faith as Lord, God, and King. In Jesus' name, amen.